0: All right, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Living the Dream podcast. Today on the show, we have Dan Eds, who is the author of a new book called Leveraging the Genetics of Leadership. So, Dan, how you doing?
1: Good. How are you?
0: Doing well, doing well. Thanks for asking. And we like to jump right into the podcast. So if you could start with telling us a little bit about yourself and some of the things you like to do for fun, that would be great.
1: Okay, well, uh, for fun, um, I guess my favorite hobby is... Uh, um, um taking pictures with a camera um it's the one thing that i can do where i get outdoors and I have a reasonable excuse to get outdoors <laughs> and do uh, crazy things like hiking up a 200 uh, foot wall in the middle of the night so i could take pictures of the uh, of the um, of the milky way um no sane person would do that unless there's a really good excuse
0: <laughs> yeah because i definitely wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. How long have you been? How long has that been a hobby of yours?
1: Oh, I don't know. Probably seriously, probably 10, 12 years.
0: Love it. Love it. Love it. And so tell us a little bit about your background, some of the stuff you do for work and all that.
1: Well, for 25 years, um, I've, been a, a, I've been a management consulting consultant, which means um, I've worked with probably 200 different organizations in um, their leadership, culture, Um, uh, cost recovery, process improvement. Um, I've done a fair bit of work uh, with lean, if you're familiar with the term. Um, Organizational uh, improvement, team development, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just curious. I took a couple industrial organizational psychology courses. Is that kind Mm -hmm. of that? Yep. Yep. That ballpark. Yep.
1: Kind of in that space.
0: Love it. Love it. Love it. And so tell us a little bit about your motivation and what gets you up, keeps you going every day?
1: Well, there's a number of things. One, um, I'm a born problem solver. Um, If uh, I like to say, if I can't find a few problems to solve, I'll probably go out and create some. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, um, the thing that drives me the most is really um, giving the rank and file worker the opportunity to uh, understand how they impact the mission of the organization. Um, and I'll just give you an example. I, I was thinking about this the other day. This is maybe probably 10, 15 years ago now. I'd been asked by a fairly large school district to help them identify uh their work processes for their custodians and janitors of all people so we're talking about you know an educational institution we're talking about people on the lowest level of the of the um, organizational ladder if you will uh, because there was um fairly high turnover um a lot of people showing up or not showing up for work taking sick days and there was always constant you know Uh, drive for more help more help more help and so they wanted to say okay are we getting the most uh, the most efficiency out of our custodians and janitors and over the course of about two days maybe even three I met with um, you know 75 custodians and janitors and it was more fun because no one had ever asked them what they did no one had ever asked them, you know, how they did their job, why they did their job, how they could do their job more effectively. And the director of facilities was sitting in the back of the room, and he was writing notes like crazy. And about every, you know, every break, he'd come up to me and say, "Dan, I had no idea these people did this, you know, all of this work." And uh, when we got done, or I got done with the project. Um, I calculated that uh, janitors and custodians spend about $400,000 a year just opening and closing doors to schools. And, um, and they all told me there's a, there's a way to reduce that cost, but we can't get anybody to listen to us. Um, and uh, I said, well, why is that? They said, well, all we have to do is put automatic door locks on all the doors so that from a flip of a switch we can completely shut down the school, or open the school. And so when uh, I showed the um, I showed the school board that that number, they said, "Well, is there any way that we can reduce that?" I said, "Yeah, you get an automatic switch. You give it to the you know to the, to the custodians, and in a flip of a switch, they can lock the school down, and open the thing up." And they said to me that. That simple of an idea can actually increase the safety of our of our students. I said, yeah, and, and it didn't. It was a no brainer. It didn't take the school board about ten seconds to uh, you know adopt or to uh, approve the, the expenditure, and um, and the custodians and janitors were hired. Kate, um, they were just absolutely thrilled, and I went home thinking, you know, I think I just done the most important job of my career, and it was it was just a blast to see the excitement, the enthusiasm for, you know, those at the bottom of the organizational ladder really to have a voice, um, in, in, in ways that directly impacted the mission of, of education in a you know, in a, in a large urban school district. So that's, that's why I get up in the morning.
0: Gotcha. No, I love that. I love that. Why do you think, um, the people at the bottom of the organizational ladder are so neglected if they have ideas that are so applicable to the like hands-on situation
1: yeah well there's there, there's there's two reasons um you know um you know since i, I i've got a 96 year old mother that's been in and out of the hospital for the last couple of months so it's kind of fresh in my mind but you know people who who clean the bedpans don't get a whole lot of professional respect yet it is frequently those people who are closest to the patient and the customer who can prevent a fall, who can increase patient safety and um, uh, falls in a hospital is a leading cause of accidents. And if anybody's paying attention, um, accidental accidents in hospitals is a leading cause of death in America. Um, estimated somewhere of around 160 to 161,000 people die in America because of avoidable accidents in hospitals. Well, who are the people that are closest to the patient that can help them avoid a fall or or an accident? Typically, it's it's the med techs, it's the people who are doing the most mundane, um, you know, just caring for the basic physical health of a patient and and but because they don't have the 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 rn the the, the md and all the letters behind their name they are frequently ignored which i think is is uh, frankly a travesty
0: yeah yeah no absolutely i completely agree i completely agree well awesome tell us a little bit more about your book
1: well, it, it actually started out in, in, a, in a very similar kind of conversation. And it wasn't just one conversation. It was actually culmination of many. Um, but I'll give you th- sort of the, the, the one that crystallized my, uh, the project and said, I got to do something about this. And I was asked to, um, by a large state agency, to help um, this one t- team. Uh, improve their workflow, improve their process, and frankly, improve the morale of the team. It was um, probably about eight or nine years ago. We were just coming out of the the uh, the, the depression of the recession, and um, this team had been its budget had been hammered, um, massive layoffs, but you know very little reduction in workload, and um, and so they said, "Can you do this lean?" Project help them identify their business processes and and look for ways to improve those those processes, um, and and really give them you know a, a voice in their own work. So you know I was thrilled, and after uh, four days we had um, two I have to admit beautiful value stream maps displayed on a large wall, which was simply you know how value is created through their workflows, and. Um, uh and we had we had figured out that every invoice that they paid since they were a funding agency they paid a lot of invoices um every process every invoice that they that they processed had to cross the financial manager's desk upwards of seven times before it was ever fully processed and paid and um after four days i mean there was a lot of excitement um and uh we had designed uh, three really simple process improvement initiatives, not one of which required an appropriation of money by the governor, didn't didn't require a whole lot of, of, of approval. Um, they could have done it themselves. And um, at the very end, we we're just breaking up. And a, a guy who was one of their senior managers, he's probably 6'2", 6'3", good sized guy, probably weighs 250 pounds, walked up to the manager. Okay. walks up to the manager, grabs him by the lapels of a sport coat, lifts him up so he's on his (laughs) tiptoes. I'm not joking. Shakes him like this and says, if you don't do something with this, don't ever ask me to help you ever again. And the guy's head is like, you know, bobbing back and forth. And I'm like five feet away and I'm thinking, this is really pretty interesting. So uh, very last conversation, they said, you know, let's take what we've done and present this to the executive leadership of the department. Large department um, had the ear of the governor. Um, in fact, the governor had even uh, campaigned on a, on a platform of more efficient government. And it even said lean was gonna be his, his, uh, his tool. And um, so out of respect, we said, yeah, okay. And we, we made a presentation to the executive Uh, The executive team, they were thrilled. They can now go to the governor saying, yeah, see, we're doing lean. We're, um, you know, we're following your mandates. And, you know, they could pat themselves on the back. Unfortunately, when we walked out of the room, they said, oh, by the way, could you please keep so-and-so who's not here today, just keep her abreast of what you're doing. And you could just watch the energy in the air just deflate out of these people. Because it was in retrospect, I realized it was another one of those indications that the executive leadership team—we really don't trust you. We don't really believe that you can pull this off on your on your own. And in the end, not one of those initiatives was ever implemented. Four days, eighteen um, well-trained, seasoned people uh, who absolutely wanted the best for their their stakeholders, their customers, and the organization. Not one initiative was ever implemented, um, in my judgment, simply because there was, the culture said, from the top down, we don't have to look down. The culture said we need to look up. Any any good ideas come from up the organizational ladder, rather than below the you know, the the, the rank and file. And when I saw that, you know, it was just I thought, you know, I've seen this thing too many times, and so I began to actually ask the question how do high-impact organizations approach the practice of leadership? It was that simple. Um, I didn't really know what I was looking for. It was just I got to figure out how high-impact organizations approach the practice of leadership. And uh, what I found out was they approach it very, very differently. They approach it with a great deal of intentionality. And they're very clear about how they want their leaders to lead. And, uh, and that's not what we get in the vast majority of organizations.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I love that. So that's kind of what spurred you to really get the book started. Tell us a little bit about your vision for the book and the impact that you want it to have.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, when I first started doing the research, I, I, I mean, I was just, I was just curious. So, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a consultant, people ask for my opinion and, um, And so it was kind of just a natural part of uh, evolution of of my work. Um, But the more I got into it, I realized that the concepts that I was uncovering really had the capability of of reinventing the world of work, um, uh, seeing people fully engaged with their work. Um, You know, the the word we use a lot is human flourishing, Um, seeing people just come alive in organizations, um, and not you know not necessarily organizations of of you know um, large you know um, you know like like healthcare you know people just sort of get passionate about healthcare because of the nature of the industry, but seeing people get passionate about manufacturing and like custom commercial furniture, but love going to work every day because their leaders their leadership. Respects them, values their opinion, and and gives them the full voice in um, in improving the product, improving the organization, and improving uh, value to people um, or to the customers. But you know, along the way, there there's always setbacks, there's always challenges. But um, right now, I really don't remember the, the setbacks and the challenges. What I remember is uh, the the incredible people that I had a chance to meet and talk with. Um, My vision for the book is really to to start a revolution about how we approach leadership. Um, And uh, I'll just give you one example of one uh, guy that I had the opportunity to interview, which um, totally blew my mind um after talking with him i thought this is the most amazing one-hour conversation i've had in my maybe my life um i'd heard this guy speak at a lunch conference i'm i'm uh, i'm on the 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 advisory board for the salvation army and so this guy came to speak at a lunch conference and so being a member of the board i got invited and um happened to be a retired four-star general by the name of barry mccaffrey Um, You still see him on, he's still a paid news analyst for NBC News on issues of national security. When he retired from the Army, uh, he went on to serve in the Clinton administration as our nation's drug czar. And, uh, you know, if there's anything about leadership this guy does not know about, it's not worth knowing. And um, he absolutely blew me away. Um, I said, uh, so my, my standard question of everybody that I interview, I said, so if there is one or two words that you would use to describe, you know, your organization's approach to leadership. What would they be? And General McCaffrey instantly said, we practice servant leadership. And the next words out of my mouth, I really didn't even hear them because I was so focused on the phone and, you know, taking notes. Um, until, I was, until I went back and read the transcript. And he was talking to me about, um, he used a, a four letter word that I was not expecting to hear. And that word was love. And he told me about um, during the first Gulf War, so we're talking about 1991, I think. He was the uh, commander of the 24th Infantry Mechanized Division just a little group of, of employees of 26,000 soldiers. And, uh, and yet he's talking to me about being loved by his most senior commander, guy by the name of uh, Norman Schwarzkopf. And, um, and he's talking to me openly and candidly about the role of love in the United States Army. And I'm thinking to myself, the Army trains people, trains soldiers to kill people. Yet here, here's this certified war hero. The guy has three purple hearts from wounds received in combat. When he retired, he was, it was estimated that he may have been the most highly decorated general to have ever worn the uniform. And yet he's talking to me about love. And um, uh, I still get goosebumps when I think about, you know, the opportunity that I had to speak with him. And there was you know, lots more just, just like him, but he's probably, you know, sort of at that apex. Um, but like I said, right now, I, I, I don't remember the setbacks. There were lots of them. But uh, I what I remember most is the opportunity of, of meeting some absolutely incredible people, most of whom will never grace the, the national, the headlines of a national publication on leadership, but they're absolutely recreating the world of work and leadership and making the the world a better place.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that. and I love that servant leadership. I guess my follow-up question to you is so many organizations kind of take the L when they don't practice servant leadership. And why -hmm. do you think they don't just make the switch if it's the best for the company?
1: Well, I think there's two reasons. One, they don't really understand what servant leadership is all about. Um, you know, I, I know lots of people who would absolutely stand up on a platform and espouse the, uh, the the philosophy of servant leadership. And and to be maybe a little bit blunt, most of the time, what they really want is, please come serve my leadership. Um, they don't understand that leadership, fundam- servant leadership, fundamentally is about distributing power and respecting your subordinates and empowering them and developing them. And um, uh, I I don't think it's just an American thing. I think it's kind of a human thing. We love power. And when we get it, we do not want to give it up because it feels so good, Um, yet the, 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 the most influential organizations that I found, organizations that are performing at an elite level long-term. And I'm thinking hospitals, manufacturing companies, um, educational organizations, an elementary school principal uh, of all all places. Um, They distribute power. They readily give it away. Um, And uh, they, they do not They do not hold power something to be um, to be, you know, held on to with a closed fist, they actually open their fist, their hands up to distribute power to give power to the rank and file and when you see it, it is a beautiful thing to uphold.
0: Yeah, yeah I love that so what are some of the qualities a servant leader needs before they can really step into that role where they're serving their subordinates.
1: Well, what are they, what does a servant leader need before they step into the role? Um, interesting question. Um, I've, I've had a lot of questions. I, that that's a little nuanced. So thank you. Yeah. Um, I, you know, th- there's always a certain amount of, of humility and self-reflection that goes on in, in, uh, in leadership. Um, I'm actually taking a leadership development course right now and um you know, I mean, it's, it's nothing novel to say if you are a leader, you want to be a leader, you want to grow in your leadership performance and capabilities. You need a certain level of humility. Um, and that, frankly, goes the long way. Um, but the other thing is, I, one of the reasons why I think servant leadership is not implemented more is because there's seldom um, the how to's. Well, how do I become a servant leader? How do I exercise servant leader leadership? And uh, since I mentioned the general, I, I asked him a very, very similar question. I said, "So, how does the army um, support uh, and promote the concept of servant leadership?" And he said, "Well, I'll give you. I'll give you three ways. And um, the first way," he said. Uh, when uh, when soldiers are eating lunch or breakfast dinner in a cafeteria, he said, um, the highest ranking officer goes through the cafeteria line last because it is, it, is, it is somewhat symbolic, but they are telling their subordinates, you rank higher than I do in terms of, you know, getting basic needs met. Um, and that was one thing that General McCaffrey said about uh, General Schwarzkopf. He was always looking out for the soldier, and what does the soldier need? Um, so uh, going last through the, the 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 chow line, if you will. The second thing he said was, um, he said, uh, as at this point his, his language got pretty colorful. He said, you know, when um, a company is out on on a mission, um, he said, uh, the latrines. Um, are, you know, covered up and, and you know, the human waste goes into a 55-gallon barrel bucket. And uh, he said, every few days, you know, someone has to take a bunch of gas and carry, no, excuse me, diesel fuel, pour it into that 55-gallon barrel bucket, um, barrel, and, uh, and burn it. He said, um, you might think that the lowest private is the guy who has to stand there and stir that stuff. He said, the reality is everybody, including the company commander takes a turn. And the reason is, is because in a, in a culture of servant leadership, everybody has to take a turn doing the dirty work. And uh, he said the third way that the army supports the practice of servant leadership is um, and actually as he was telling me this story i was thinking about a movie maybe you've seen it stars mel gibson and uh, it's called we were soldiers then Uh, it's a story about um, the first major um, uh, battle that u.s forces had in vietnam with north 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 vietnamese regulars and um, general mccaffrey said uh when a helicopter is leaving on a mission Um, the last person to get on that helicopter is the highest ranking officer. The first person to get off that helicopter is the highest ranking officer because they're putting themselves in harm's way first. And that is consistent with one of the core values of the United States Army, which is selfless service, which they define as putting the welfare of the nation the Army and your subordinates above your own. Now, when I've mentioned this several times, Spiel said, Well, you know, my Army sergeant mentioned them by name going through boot camp, sure, certainly didn't love me. And I said, Well, yeah, but 50 years later, you still remember who they are. <laughs> and, um, but we don't break servant leadership down into action items. Um, and, you know, in the United States Army, it reinforces servant leadership one way and in ways that would be totally inappropriate for, say, an elementary school or a manufacturing company or a hospital. And and so because we can't break, it, break servant leadership down into certain action items, things that we do, um, it just gets really hard to actually execute uh, something called servant leadership, even though I don't know anybody who would say servant leadership is a bad idea. Uh, It it just comes down to, we don't know how to do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I honestly, it sounds like it has a lot to do with that four letter word, love.
1: You know, um, uh, about on his last January, February sometime, I did a podcast with uh, some guys, and uh, their podcast is called uh, Love is a Business Strategy. And um, when we got talking about it, you know, it, it, the, the reality is that word makes me uncomfortable. In a business organizational setting, it just sort of like makes me uncomfortable. The, that, that whatever side of the brain is the rational, logical side that side of my brain, when people talk, talk about love in an organizational setting, it just it just like wants to spin out of control. It doesn't compute. And yet every place I looked in an organization that was performing at an elite level, um, they may not use that word love, but every place I looked, you'd be hard pressed to say, oh, if that's not love, I don't know what is. Some called it love, others called it things like safety, which would which would be appropriate in an industrial manufacturing setting with, you know, 2,000 degree uh, molten you know metal flowing around. Others called it um, uh, respect. Others called it um, engagement. Uh, but they but there is some element of love in every one of the organizations I, I looked at. Again, even though a lot of them would never have used that word.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, at the root of all these organizations, it's like people running them. And we have a, such a need for love, you know?
1: You know, there, there, is, um, there is something uh, to be said about that. Um, you, you know, one of the things that struck me um, about halfway through doing the research and the, the writing, you know, which was about a five-year exercise. Um, I was kind of looking at, at people i talked to, the case studies that I had, and I realized that, that three of the organizations that, I, that I, I was profiling are so good at what they do. Um, two of them are in healthcare. One was in, is in manufacturing. But they are so good at what they do. They have so many people asking them for help that they've actually had to spin off a training or consulting arm of their, of, their, of their organization just to help other organizations perform at a higher level. And yet at the core of what they do is loving their people. And it's not just loving their people for loving their people's sake it's loving their people to also include delivering maximum value to their patients or their customers. Um, You know, there's a lot of people that talk about, well, you know, corporations need to treat their people better, they need to treat them with greater respect, um, greater kindness, you know, all this kind of stuff, which is great, but it's a moral argument that often we get, we, we, we think of it as a well, we either, we either take care of our people or we take care of our, pay, our, of our clients, but we can't do both at the same time. The reality is not only can we do both at the same time, but we should do both at the same time because on one hand, we, we, we raise the level of, of, of humanity. And on the other hand, we provide more value to our customers. And, uh, and what's wrong with that picture? Um, and, uh, you know, uh, in one case, the, the, the small manufacturing company that I referenced a little while ago, they have so many people knocking on their door that, that are ask, asking them to do business with them. They actually have a 10 point scale and, and, and before, uh, they will accept you as a customer, they have to make sure that you score at certain you know criteria on this 10 point scale, or they say. No, we won't take your business, and they have people lining up. It's a waiting list of people who, who to do business with them. Now, you know, as, as you know, as any kind of a business guy, that that's like that's the promised land. That's Nirvana right there. Absolutely. Um, and yet, and you know, at the core of what they do is they're they're obsessive with value, creating value wherever wherever they find it, and the biggest place you find value is with your people. And, uh, and so that organization and every other one I looked at, they're, they're obsessed with creating value in their people. And, um, and it pays back dividends and spades. I love
0: it. I love it. Awesome. Well, if there was one or two types of people, or maybe specific people that you have in your head, that would help you take the next step towards really just changing leadership across the world.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: who would that person be and how would they do it?
1: Uh, great question. So and, and instead of telling you my opinion, let me actually uh, share the story of one of the people I interviewed in the book. Um, Brian is a young guy. When I, when I interviewed him, we were having lunch one day and he was probably 37 years old. A couple of years prior, he had applied for internal promotion um, uh, in his company, which uh, is one of the largest engineering firms in the world. Eighteen or nineteen thousand employees, you know, something like five billion dollars in, in revenues, and um, he said, uh, you know, when I when I applied for this promotion, he said I thought I was applying for a title and then gave it to me, and I realized I didn't have I didn't have a clue what I was supposed to do as a leader, and so um, I said, so oh, let me guess, um, they sent you off to three months leadership training to uh, make sure you were successful. And his eyes got big. I mean, he's an engineer, so he takes everything seriously. His eyes got real big. He said, no, they didn't do anything. So uh, I said, well, don't take it personal. And, and of course I asked, what, what did you do? And what he, what he went about doing is something that anybody can do. Um, in my language, he designed a system. That's what he does for a living. He designs you know, uh, wastewater treatment systems. But he said, um, actually, what he what he he said, I I I did some research on um, in you know in leadership, and I I concluded that research is fundamentally a relational enterprise. So anytime someone says, well, how do I improve my my leadership? is say it's a relational enterprise, plain and simple. If you don't like relationships, stay out of it. Um, And, but so with Brian, I said, so how did you go about doing that? He said, well, I started out small at first. He said, "Um, when people would come into my office and, you know, have this problem or that problem, he said, I always would take a few minutes just to get to know them as people outside the context of the, of the company. And uh, he said that was working pretty well. So I thought, well, I take it to a next step. And when I would go to their, workplace, their cubicle, I'd always take a few minutes just to learn about them and their family and where they come from, just so I could start building a, a relationship with them. And uh, then he took another step. Um, he said, I, I eventually ripped out all of the cubicles and all of the walls in the office because I thought if relationship with me and my staff was good, it was even better if people with on his team had relationships with each other. So he ripped up, took out all the cubicles, ripped out all the walls, made a turn the office into an open office um, concept. And, uh, and uh, the, but the one thing that he did that I thought was the absolute brilliant, actually there's two things I thought was just brilliant. Number one, he made it a point. And I, I would tell any aspiring uh, man or woman who aspired to a position of leadership, the first thing you do, A, recognize that leadership is a relational enterprise. The second thing you do is get your butt out of your chair, and you go and work or visit side by side with your team. And that was the, that was the number one thing that I found in looking at these high-impact organizations was this cultural requirement or mandate that if you're a manager in this organization, your job is outside your office. Your job is working side by side with the rank and file. Your job is coaching and teaching and mentoring them on a daily basis, not in a classroom, but on a daily basis, you're working side by side with them. Um, And then the the, the second thing that, that Brian did, which again, I thought was just brilliant was he set up a 360 degree review of his own leadership. Talked to his HR department. They helped him design a a 360 degree review so that his subordinates can rate his leadership, which is a frightening thing. Um, And uh, so I said, well, how did that go? And he got really serious and he said, Dan, I was reading the, the 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 responses to this this review of myself, and he said I had to close the door to my office because I was crying and I didn't want anybody to see me crying because I was absolutely blown away by how meaningful it was for my some people who called me their boss to have a relationship with me, and. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I tell people all the time, you do those two things, get your butt out of your chair and go visit and work with your people, and then occasionally ask them for feedback. They will give you honest feedback, and it will be the best feedback you've ever, you will ever have in your own life.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that. That's, those are some great tips. And like, fairly simple, but also puts leaders in a vulnerable, humble position
1: you know, uh, you can go to a lot of different universities, universities of various types are cranking out PhDs and organizational leadership. And from what I saw, um, yeah, there, there, there's always a need for better education, you know, better understanding. That's great. The, the best leaders I, that I found were the ones who practiced very simple, simple, simple practices. Um, things like Writing a thank you note. Write a thank you note. That's not hard to do. It doesn't take a Ph.D. in organizational leadership. There's a great story of a guy named Doug uh, Conan, I think he was the CEO of Campbell Soup from 2001. I think it was to 2011. Responsible for one of the great corporate turnarounds in America. What he's best noted for is the daring ten is. 10-year tenure of Campbell's Soup, he wrote somewhere in the area of 30,000 thank you notes. Do the math. He's writing 10 to 15 thank you notes every day of the week. Um, And yet, during the last recession, the economic performance of Campbell's Soup uh, far outpaced their peers, um, far outpaced their competitors. And uh, one of the things that he credits that with is write thank you notes to your to your people let them know you appreciate them
0: yeah that's that's epic i love that awesome doesn't
1: doesn't take a, a mba or a phd to do it
0: no it doesn't it doesn't at all well now we're going to jump into our thriving three okay and i just want to get to know a little bit about you and how you thrive in life so what's your favorite book movie or podcast pick one oh
1: um you know, that's, that's hard to define because, um, there's, <laughs> there's a lot I like favorite book. Um, you know, there's a book that I you hear quoted a lot and uh, it's a book that I come back to every four or five years and reread it. Um, you know, it's, it's called, um, a man's search for meaning by Victor Frankel. Um, uh, you know, I, I just find myself sort of going through these cycles and then I come back to that one. Um. You know, just a terrific book. Um, what was the second one you're asking about? Uh, favorite, favorite movie?
0: Yeah, book, movie, or podcast.
1: Um, favorite movie probably would be any of the, uh, of um, Lord of the Rings, um, the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I'm a sucker for uh, uh, good versus bad. Um, you know, the, the little the little guy takes on the, the evil empire of the world. Um yeah. And um, favorite podcast? I can't. I can't say I, I have one. I, I don't have one myself. I love, I love doing these podcasts. Like, you know, like what we're doing right now because we have a chance. I think to um, to get in and really look at some issues that really impact um, people and where they work. Um, impact them in a way that goes far, far beyond, you know, simply getting a paycheck. And um, uh, I, th- I think that there, especially right now with COVID and all of the dislocations that's going on in corporate America, uh, the, the, the changing shift of power inside our organizations right now. I think we have a tremendous opportunity to really rethink the whole world of work, what it means, how we're doing it, why we're doing it. And um, I hope that we can absolutely start a revolution in the way we do leadership, because uh, we will not only change the world. Uh, will actually become, uh, deliver better value to our customers.
0: Yeah. Awesome. I love it. What's one way you like to care for yourself?
1: What's one way I like to care myself for myself? Oh, that would be going out and taking pictures because it's the one thing I could do where I could turn one side of my brain off and turn the other one on and I have a good excuse to do it. And uh, nobody looks at me like, you know, what's wrong with you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love it. What is the most epic or beautiful picture you've taken recently
1: hmm. recently well um so i love i love visiting southwest utah um, there's five national parks in utah and I've, I've visited all five of them and taken pictures of all five of them and um, there is a place in canyon lands and if you see a any picture of Southwest Utah or the Southwest in general is going to have some version of this picture. It's at a place called Mesa Arch, and it's and it's a little arch that if you sort of like slide underneath the arch, it's a one-step drop, but that step is about a thousand feet straight down, and so you don't want to slip, Yeah. Um, but on any, almost any given day, there's anywhere from 20 to you know, 75 people, every one of them was trying to get that epic picture of the sun coming up, um, you know, that's just cracking the LaSalle Mountains on the, you know, that's it, about 75 miles away in Colorado, and I've got a picture of uh, the sun just peeping over the horizon, and, um, and uh, one of the reasons why that's such an epic place is because the sunlight uh, comes towards you and hits this vertical rock wall. That's it's red I mean, it's as red as red. It hits that vertical wall and then bounces straight up and then hits the underside of this arch. And you don't see it too much with the naked eye. But when you see it in a camera, it looks like that arch glows. And so you've got the, this, the, 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 the sun just popping up over the horizon and then the glow of this arch. And, um, it's pretty cool if I do say so myself.
0: That sounds pretty cool. (laughs) I love it. Awesome. Well, what's one action step that you can take right now to continue to spread your message of leadership and start to revolutionize it?
1: Well, well, I love that question. You know, having conversations like this is one thing um, that I could do right now. The other thing that I'm working on right now is, um, Uh, I've, uh, I've seen the impact is really more about just talking about individual leadership is really talking about organizational culture. So um, what I'm really focusing on right now is, is how do I communicate the organizational benefit of rethinking leadership? And I would say that to anybody who is looking at leadership is involved with leadership. at some point in our, in our conversation around leadership, we have to start thinking about the impact of the organization and the impact on the people that we lead and that we serve. Um, in this country, the, the, the data says that we spend somewhere around $50 billion a year in leadership development. But the, um, the value, the, the return on investment to the, our organizations You know, really sacred institutions, hospitals, schools, colleges, universities, um, nonprofits, government, um, as well as our, our most prestigious commercial organizations, the ROI of leadership development is virtually zero. And that's from places like Harvard and Stanford and McKinsey and and the Gallup organization. They're all concluding that there's virtually no benefit to the organization. And leadership in general is declining in value um, across across our country, in fact, across the planet. And um, there is so much that we can do um, that's so simple that we can really, uh, if given the opportunity, uh, we can really recreate the world of work, give people the opportunity to flourish, to become better human beings, and um, and the and there's abundant ex- examples of this. All we have to do is look for them. And uh, you know, I, I would tell any uh, young person that's sort of wanting to walk down this road, um, you know, find someone, find someone that you respect and you that you value, um, and they just say, hey, can I? can I follow you around someday? Let me just watch you and uh, and see how they interact with their people and their staff. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think leadership is something that we learn academically. I think it's something that we see, we, we see it modeled and then we catch the modeling. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. I love that. Is there anything else you want to chat about before we sign off?
1: Um, tell me more about your journey.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Fairly young guy, you know, twenty-two. Um, right now, twenty-two. Right now. Really? <laughs> yes, sir.
1: Cool. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. I'm in great company. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So fairly young guy, and realized at a younger age than I am now. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say a young age, still young. Yeah. Um, sure. That thinking big was crucial mm-hmm. for my life mm-hmm. journey, and so yep. grew up pretty poor. So I mm-hmm. thought really big of like. Two mm-hmm. main goals in my life: financial mm-hmm. freedom for myself and sure. my family, and then sure. spending the rest of my life ending poverty around the world. Like that's cool. that's what I want to go for. Okay. And so yeah, that's kind of what, where I'm at, and I have also been on the self-discovery journey of like, what do mm-hmm. I really love doing?
1: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm.
0: this actually changed my life. There's mm-hmm. this dude who runs Carrot.com, which is a, a website for real estate investors and agents, okay. And okay. he like creates websites for him. The energy audit that he has on his website is like he writes down the activities that give him energy writes down the activities Mm -hmm. that drain energy from him and he tries Mm -hmm. to focus on the things that give him energy that's actually part of the reason i took this podcast daily cool i wrote down the things that give me energy and one of those things was talking to people about their dreams and goals because
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: another thing you should know about me is that i played football most of my life and
1: hated it. really
0: yep Yep. I was pretty good at it too. Went to college uh-huh. for it, but absolutely okay. hated it. And because I hated it, but was doing it with all my time, I never cultivated my passions or my interests. And so yep. I really know how much it stinks to be mm-hmm. doing something that you hate mm-hmm. and feel trapped in it. So I'm really mm-hmm. passionate about hearing what people love and helping mm-hmm. them do yep. it. Yep. And so that's kind of why I started the daily podcast. Real estate syndication for apartments is kind of my mm-hmm. ticket to yep. building generational wealth and financial freedom. And okay
1: yeah well i uh, i absolutely applaud uh what you're doing how you're how you're going about it um you know i i I mentioned uh i'm i'm going through a leadership development course right now i've been i've been through them before and um you know if you haven't noticed i have a little bit of gray hair here (laughs) and uh and i think you know so many times i think you know if i would have been doing this like 40 years ago i'd be way smarter than what i am right now and um You know, the the biggest thing that one of the biggest things that I think we all face is uh, not recognizing that the good Lord has given each and every one of us something unique and special and worthwhile to do. And he has uniquely um, enabled us, given us the skills to do that, to do those things. And so many times we let everybody and everything else in the world describe for us what we ought to be doing and uh, never recognizing or realizing that we have gifts that God has given us to be used for his purpose and his glory and to take care of other people and and make the world a better place. So congratulations, I totally, totally applaud you both for the the economic vision um, as well as the larger vision of of, uh, ending homelessness and poverty. Um, I happen to be, uh, I, I, I'm, I actually, I'm the chairman of the board of um, advisory board for the Salvation Army here in, uh, in the Seattle area locally. And, um, you know, that's what we do day in and day out. And, you know, I meet the people who are doing these work, doing this work. And I just, I walk away every time and I think, where did we get these people? They're just so many of them will never be recognized on Wall Street. They'll never get their name recognized in any kind of a big publication, yet they are, by and large, the most fulfilled, satisfied, hardworking, joyful people that I know. Get to fulfill their passion, or otherwise they wouldn't be there. Um, they get to work in that place where they feel that God has uniquely prepared them to work and, um, and it's just, uh, it's, it's pure magic to watch it. So yeah, way to go. Don't, <laughs> don't give up in 20 years. You'll find out something else to do, but that's okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate the encouragement for sure. So, uh, yeah. Thank you.
1: Yeah. No, keep it up. Awesome. When, I, when I, when I was 22 years old, I, I want, I wanted to change the world, but in different ways, um, and some ways that I haven't lost that vision is just kind of morphed and changed into other ways of uh, other ways of looking at it. But, uh, you know, I, I, I just applaud you for your vision, what you're trying to do. And uh, there's nothing wrong with having good solid economic um, motivation, um, but yet to tie that. And people I know that have tied those two passions together, of, you know, economic opportunity and taking on things like poverty and homelessness, um, People that I know that that are doing that, man, they're, they're some dynamic people there, and um, they look at life in a way that's um, beautiful. I mean, it's holistic, it's worthwhile. They're not going to become become um, you know slaves to the dollar, um, but they want to. They're they're really about becoming slaves to humanity and serving humanity the best way that they can.
0: Yeah, yeah, servant leadership, if you will
1: gosh there it is again <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome well dan thank you so much for being on the show i really enjoyed the conversation
1: and, uh, hey thanks for the opportunity it's it's uh, it's been a thrill
0: yeah yeah no absolutely and if you're listening to this and you loved what dan had to say dan how can they reach you and
1: uh simplest way is just my website daniel Eds, and uh got a contact form there just fill that out. And if they just want to get on a mailing list or get on my my constant contact list, just give it to me and it goes right to the constant contact. And then they get um, special reports that I send out and notifications of, of seminars and workshops and all that kind of good stuff.
0: Sounds good. You heard him. If there's any way that you feel like you vibe with his dreams or you can help him with his dreams and goals and change leadership across the world, make the contact, get on the email list. Also send this episode to somebody you know who needs to hear the message about leadership, maybe somebody who's an emerging leader and can also get connected to Dan. And finally, just go ahead and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We'd greatly appreciate it. And we're out.